Hello, welcome to Green Heritage Futures. My name is Lucy Latham and this is a podcast series showcasing the projects and voices of those working at the intersection of cultural heritage and climate change. This podcast is brought to you by Julie's Bicycle and is part of the European Union's Horizon 2020 Rock Project. In this episode of Green Heritage Futures, I am joined by Christina Swiderska, Principal Researcher at the International Institute for Environment and Development. Christina, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. So if we can first uh, kick off with a question. So can you please explain to us what Indigenous biocultural heritage is? Yes, so biocultural heritage is uh, referring to intangible cultural heritage. So that's traditional knowledge, cultural and spiritual values and customary laws. And then the the, um, bio bit at the beginning is tangible heritage. So it's biodiversity, like seeds and medicinal plants and landscapes, that all of which has been shaped by indigenous peoples over millennia and handed down from generation to generation. We've been working on this concept, um, which essentially came out of a a research project in response to the um, lack of recognition of rights of indigenous peoples over their biological resources. So the concept emphasizes the links between traditional knowledge, biodiversity, landscapes, cultural and spiritual values and customary laws and their interdependence. Um, And it it reflects the holistic worldview of indigenous peoples. So it's been very much inspired by research in the Andes with Quechua communities, and then uh, backed up by research in 11 ethnic groups in five countries. Fantastic. And why do you think it's so important to engage with indigenous worldviews? Indigenous peoples, sustain a lot of biodiversity. Much of the world's remaining biodiversity is found on their territories. Um, So uh, traditional subsistence agriculture is very rich in uh, different types of seeds, uh, lots of crops that we no longer use in our agriculture. So um, indigenous worldviews are Uh, the sort of development values and philosophies and visions that promote those kind of subsistence farming systems and enable their continuation. And they're really important for sustainable development because um, very often they're, they're holistic. So they're not just about economic development. They integrate uh, nature conservation values, social equity values. A, a good example is the going back to Peru, the, the Quechua Ailu concept, where well-being um, has to, um, well, t- to achieve well-being, uh, you need to ensure that uh, the natural world the human world and domesticated animals and the sacred world and the ancestors are in balance. So those three communities or worlds must be in balance for well-being to be achieved. It sounds like there's a lot of um, language that we're now missing that we can can learn from Indigenous communities that will help better think about sustainable development in that holistic sense you, you referred to. 
Yes, I mean, I th- indigenous communities have um, centuries of uh, accumulated wisdom of living um, sustainably in their natural environments. Um, so they have a lot of uh, important knowledge about sustainable um, agriculture practices, you know, sustainable resource management. And um, there's a lot that we now in the West could learn from those values and practices. And you've been focused on um, addressing SDG 2, um, ending hunger. Um, how do you think your work or, or research interests are relevant to SDG 13, climate action? Well, indigenous peoples are very much on the front line of climate change, and they often live in quite risk-prone areas, in remote rural areas such as mountains or in coastal regions or drylands, which are very much affected by climate change. And because they have a a high dependence on natural resources for their livelihoods, you know, they are very affected by it. At the same time, they've been coping with environmental changes, climatic changes for centuries. And so how to adapt is also very much um, included in their in their knowledge systems. And the other um, important dimension is that, um, as I mentioned before, they have a very high diversity of crops and um, livestock in their farming systems and pastoral systems. And as the climate changes, we need more and more diversity uh, because when there's, um, you know, a drought or, a, you know, a big flood, um, the more diversity of crops you have, the more certainty you have that something will survive. And also, it's like a future insurance policy. We don't know what the climate's really going to be like in a particular place in, you know, in, in 50 years. So we need this diversity to be able to adapt. And this is obviously particularly uh, critical in this moment of time where we're seeing new studies coming out depicting this failure of, of biodiversity that we're currently um, existing within, almost a, a collapse, I think, is um, often used to talk about biodiversity. Yes, exactly. Yes, it's it's um, the recent UN report showed that we are living at a moment of a biodiversity crisis. So it, it, in many ways, it's a, it's not just a climate change crisis, but along with that, there's a biodiversity loss crisis. And along with that, unfortunately, we have a cultural loss crisis because traditional knowledge is also being lost very fast. And we need that knowledge. We need all the knowledge we can get to be able to adapt. So to um, talk a little bit about the um, uh, Rock Project, which, of course, this podcast um, is supported by, within Rock, we're focusing a lot on citizen engagement um, and participation. Uh, so given your experience with participatory action research, what could other um, heritage professionals uh, perhaps learn from, from your work and your experience? Yes, our experience has been in rural areas um, with farming communities, and it's very clear that um, participation and building on local knowledge and culture is really important for the sustainability of initiatives for conservation and sustainable development. I think what what's important from in terms of what we've learnt is that the, you know, it's it's critical to engage as many different actors in communities as possible, to be as inclusive as possible, but also to start including them right from the start, and you know, allowing people to really 
shape the design of projects and the implementation and analysis and follow-up. And the more you can be inclusive and decentralize the decision-making or share the decision-making, the more ownership is created and therefore the more sustainability the initiatives have. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's interesting to see that in our research, a lot of heritage professionals struggling to... Um, tap into environmental resources and environmental knowledge. And it seems like there is a growing focus now on ensuring that heritage professionals have access to information and and networks and partnerships, which will help um, give them the the skills that they need to really embed sustainability um, kind of operationally, but on a maybe a, a thematic level in terms of you know creative programming or um, audience mm-hmm. communication. Yeah, I mean heritage and the arts have a huge amount they can contribute to uh, promoting sustainable development. So um, in terms of raising public awareness in a way which isn't sort of telling people that, you know, it's all doom and gloom, but in a positive and enjoyable, you know, through an enjoyable experience. So it's great that um, heritage and the arts are beginning to engage more. And I think there's a huge potential for them to do a lot more as well. Yes, absolutely. We agree wholeheartedly here at Julie's Bicycle. So an- another thing that Rock Project is uh, is focusing on is how environmental policy um, and legislation can actively add value to heritage management. Do you have any reflections or recommendations on how policy frameworks could better align cultural and environmental sustainability? Yes, I mean, that's a really key issue. Um, In the sector I work in the most is the biodiversity conservation sector. There has traditionally been a very strong focus on state-managed protected areas. And increasingly, there's a realisation that local communities, indigenous peoples need to be part of the process. But still, I think there's quite a long way to go to ensure that national environment and protected area policies and legislation really integrates indigenous peoples and support community-led conservation, um, which is, as I explained before, more likely to be sustainable in the long term than if you impose the conservation from from outside. I think there's also a need to integrate cultural um, issues in development policies. And for example, in agriculture, there's opportunities for development assistance, for example, for for DFID to support Indigenous peoples and uh, their central role in climate adaptation. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Um, Christina, that's all we have time for today. But I want to say thank you so much for joining us on the Green Heritage Futures podcast. Thanks once again to Christina Swiderska from the International Institute for Environment and Development. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the series. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Green Heritage Futures, a podcast by Julie's Bicycle as part of the European Union's Horizon 2020 Rock Project. Julie's Bicycle is a London-based charity that supports and empowers the creative community to act on climate change and environmental sustainability. Check out our website for more information. Thanks for listening.